Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. I want to welcome everyone to the LSE's online events platform. Um, my name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department and director of the Fallon United States Center, which is hosting uh, tonight's event. And it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Professor Ruha Benjamin. Uh, Ruha is a professor of uh, African-American studies at Princeton University, where she writes and teaches about the social dimensions of science, medicine, and technology. She's the author of the prize-winning uh, Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code with Polity in 2020, and People, Science, Bodies, and Rights on the Stem Cell Frontier, and that was with Stanford in 2013. She's the founding director of the Ida B. Wells Just Data Lab at Princeton, which is devoted to bringing together students and educators, activists, and artists working at the intersection of data conception, its production, and its circulation. She's an award-winning teacher and was named an inaugural Freedom Scholar in 2020 by the Marguerite Casey Foundation and the Group Health Fund. She received her PhD in sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. Professor Benjamin's here to talk about her latest book, Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want, which is out with Princeton University Press. It's received a great deal of advanced praise and we're, we're eager to have her join us to talk about the book and what she calls the microvision of um, social change that puts individuals um, and local communities front and center as, as agents of social change and justice. Um, a few words about the format um, this evening. And first, just apologies for the slow start. This really was beyond um, our control. I think most of you know the Zoom platform was was down and we're now also dependent upon Zoom, but here we are. Uh, Rua will get us started with 30 minutes or so of um, summary com comments um, uh, on the book. Um, we'll then open it up for um, discussion. Uh, we've left plenty of time for questions, so please don't be shy. You can send your questions to us via the Q&A function on Zoom and I'll do my level best to put as many of them as possible to Rua before, you know, during the, the discussion period. Um, and finally, for those of you keen to purchase a copy of her new book, you'll be able to, you'll see a link uh, in the Zoom chat area that you can click on. And it'll take you right to uh, the place to, um, to purchase. So normally at this point, um, I would ask you to put your hands together to give our speaker one of those warm LSE welcomes that we're famous for. That of course is not possible tonight. So in lieu of applause, I encourage you to pose your questions in the Q&A period. Rua, welcome to LSE's online platform. It's really great to have you with us this evening. We look forward to your presentation and the discussion to follow. Oh, it's a complete honor. Thank you so much for having me. By now, after two and a half years of this, I'm really adept at imagining virtual applause in my ear. So you have to become your own cheerleader after a while. But thank you so much for having me. Um, thanks, everyone, for logging in and being patient with us as we uh, got ready here. Um, 
thanks for everyone behind the scenes who's made this possible. Um, and so let's jump in here. I start with uh, these words of Octavia E. Butler, uh, a science fiction writer um, and conjurer of speculative worlds. She says, all that you touch, you change, all that you change, changes you. And this is the epigraph of the book, Viral Justice. It's the heartbeat. And now we can all log off because that's really what I want you to know. <laughs> but I'll come back to Butler and this, uh, this sort of recurring theme several times tonight. So I begin first by noting this is not going to be a traditional academic talk. This book is not a, a, a conventional monograph that you would expect. It's a mix of memoir, a mix of uh, social commentary, analysis, prescription. Um, so I just prepare you in advance for what's to come. And uh, as the book starts, I start tonight with the White House. I grew up in this White House. At least that's what the gold-plated sign hanging on the front door announced. In the 1950s, my grandparents bought this two-story craftsman just off of Crenshaw Boulevard in LA. They were children of the Great Migration, the era between 1915 and 1970 when millions of African-Americans left the Jim Crow South in search for better futures in the Northern and Western United States. They sprang from Arkansas and Texas by way of Georgia, then made their way West, first to the Watts neighborhood of LA and then to the corner of the city where they finally put down roots, Lemur Park. My grandparents, if you hadn't guessed, were the whites. They raised my father and my four aunts in this craftsman on 4th Avenue by the early 80s. I also found refuge there uh, alongside my parents and brother Jamal, who you'll get to meet a little more at the very end. Although this was the side of LA where even the palm trees looked exhausted, in my mind, the entire world revolved around our block. School bells ringing, police helicopters circling, music vibrating from the apartments next door and my grandma holding court in the kitchen. There in that house under grandma White's roof was where I first caught fire, as in the poem, Catch the Fire by Sonia Sanchez. I say, where is your fire? I say, where is your fire? You got to find it and pass it on. You got to find it and pass it on. From you to me, from me to her, from her to him, from the father to the son, from the brother to the sister, from the daughter to the mother, from the mother to the child. Where is your fire? I say, where is your fire? Can't you smell it coming out of our past? The fire of living, not dying. The fire of loving, not killing. Where is our beautiful fire that gave light to the world? Walking, singing, building, laughing, learning, loving, teaching, being. Here is my hand, catch the fire and live, 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 live. That's Catch the Fire by Sonia Sanchez. There in that house under Grandma White's roof was where I first experienced mercy as in the poem Mercy by Nikki Giovanni. She asked me to kill the spider. Instead, I got the most peaceful weapons I can find. I take a cup 
and a napkin, I catch the spider, put it outside and allow it to walk away. If I am ever caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, just being alive, not bothering anyone, I hope I am greeted with the same kind of mercy. That's Mercy by Nikki Giovanni. There in that house under Grandma White's roof was where I first experienced love, as in the poem Love, L-O-V-E by Ursula Rucker. On this day, there will be no talk of war or politic or disaster or death. Love is alive today. So we will speak only of love. There will be only love on tongue and lip and in heart and thought. And it won't be that Hollywood type of love. No, not TV love, not dime store novel love, and certainly not mainstream music love. Love, love, you know, love. Love that has been worked on like gardens and term papers. Love that has been nurtured like children and well, like children. Love that falls, crashes even, burns, but dusts off, fixes up, and rises, rises more brilliant than before. Phoenix love, yeah, Phoenix love. So let us speak only of love, healing love, no herbal over-the-counter love, real healing love, like God love, like mother's love, love, lover's love, child's love, like best friend love, and change the world love, human love, humans love, love soft, love hard, but just love. Enjoy this new garden, work on it together, and it will be perennial. It will grow year to year. It will be beautiful. It will win blue ribbons and everything. Folks will come from far and wide, just to see it and wish they had it, had this kind of garden, this kind of love. L-O-V-E by Ursula Rucker. I start with poetry to remind us that creating a just world requires more than new laws and policies, but a new poetics, by which I mean creative care and attention to how we treat and value each other. I start with poetry because poetry is easy to underestimate, the same way it's easy to underestimate how our individual actions and decisions can shape the world around us. Sitting next to a three-inch tomb of a book, a poem appears frivolous and slight, but a poem can slice into your insides and open you up to the world like 1,000 footnotes never could. If this pandemic has taught us anything, it's that something almost undetectable can be deadly and that we can transmit it without even knowing. Doesn't that imply that small things, seemingly minor actions, decisions, habits, could have exponential effects in the other direction, tipping the scales towards justice, affirming life, fostering well-being, invigorating society? This attention to seemingly small actions is what I think of as viral justice because of how this virus is teaching me to respect the microscopic. The point is, we cannot wait for top-down change or those who monopolize power and resources to save us. 
we have to start right in our own backyards or front yards for that matter. Remembering that grassroots can literally mean working in the grass. So this is what the sidewalks looked like in front of the White House when I was growing up. These grassy patches running us alongside the sidewalks all over LA are called parkways. But now many of these dry patches look like this, overflowing with edible gardens. Thanks to Ron Finley, AKA the gangster gardener, longtime resident of South Central, a place he describes as home to the drive through and the drive by. But Finley is changing that one plot at a time. In 2010, he grew frustrated with how residential segregation had made it hard to purchase affordable fresh vegetables in the neighborhood. So he decided to plant food in the parkway between the sidewalk and the street. Funny thing is, he says, the drive-throughs are killing more people than the drive-bys. People are dying from curable diseases in South Central. I got tired of seeing this happening. I see dialysis centers popping up like Starbucks. And I figured this has to stop. So food is the problem and food is the solution, he says. What I did, I planted a food forest in front of my house. Pumpkins, peppers, sunflowers, corn, and kale. At first, the city cited him and threatened to issue an arrest warrant, reminding us how law enforcement is so often used as a blunt and violent tool to address pressing social issues like food insecurity, environmental injustice, housing injustice, and more, all connected. What if we got to the roots of the problem instead? Eventually, Finley and supporters got the city to change the law that prevented people from growing edible landscapes on the parkways. Now, he and his team at Green Grounds have planted over 20 urban gardens around the city. They also created a teaching garden to spread knowledge about organic farming with the aim of also creating jobs to employ residents. Growing your own food is like printing your own money, Finley likes to say. For Finley, it was never simply about the food though. He gets emotional talking about food insecure neighbors who were shocked when they realized they could take whatever they wanted from his yard for free. His philosophy is to give a person a vegetable, but also teach them how to farm so they have skin in the game. He says, the air is better. You're changing the ecosystem when you put in a garden. We are part of the ecosystem, so that garden is changing us. Remember, Octavia. And then the beauty factor. You get to walk out of your door and experience nature every day. That's going to change you. I don't care how jaded you are. Beauty is not frivolous or a luxury reserved for those who can afford it, nor should it be an afterthought. Even under the harshest conditions, we all hunger, not only for food, but for beauty and meaning, which is why art and imagination are so vital for world building. What I'm calling viral justice orients us differently towards small scale, often localized actions. It invites us to witness how an idea or action that sprouts in one place may be adopted, adapted, and diffused elsewhere. But it also counters the assumption that scaling up should always be the goal. Whereas the gangster gardener is literally growing the world we want, there are world builders getting their hands dirty in so many other ways. After George Floyd's murder, students in my town organized a protest, a demonstration rather, on the main street of Princeton. They expected a few hundred people to show up and then they arrived early to chalk the, the, the street to encourage social distancing. 
But in the end, several thousand people of all ages and backgrounds converged on the corner of Nassau and Witherspoon streets with signs, chants, and solidarity. But while this more obvious assertion of justice was happening several years before this gathering, after the killing of Michael Brown, some of these same students were instrumental in creating a new course at Princeton High School called Racial Literacy and Justice that's now offered every year. They remind us that a key component of viral justice is knowing what you're against and what you're for, uprooting what's harmful and sowing what we need more of. Turning to healthcare, viral justice looks like medical students fed up with the apathy of their institutions. So instead of waiting for top-down change, they formed an organization across the country called White Coats for Black Lives with different chapters. They staged die-ins to honor victims of police violence and demonstrate a commitment to dismantling the systems that led to their deaths. The actions of these students raised an important question to the institution of medicine. Are medical professionals responsible for combating racism? For these students who found themselves committed to a profession that has vowed to support the well-being of all patients and has consistently broken that promise, the answer was an emphatic yes. Like the students at Princeton High, they aren't only calling attention to what we must change, they're also proposing concrete plans for transforming the curriculum and training of medical education. One of the things I love most is that White Coats for Black Lives issues an annual report card grading medical schools around the country on whether they are moving beyond lip service to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and really investing in policies and practices instead of only feel-good platitudes. The third example of viral justice I'll share today takes us to the city of Seattle, where residents are focused on nearly microscopic changes in the city budget. Here we find a broad and powerful coalition of over 200 local organizations that decided to band together in the wake of the 2020 protests. Together, they're working on a range of issues, including housing for all, indigenous sovereignty, safe and affordable public transportation, food support, digital equity, disability justice, and a Green New Deal. Like the other examples I shared, they're connecting what we don't need and what we do need, noting that the city spends 26 times more on policing than on climate. So the solidarity budget invests in climate resilience through spending that helps transition low-income households from oil, heat to clean energy. That in turn lowers climate pollution and reduces residents' utility bills. Their demand to stop police sweeps of homeless encampments is tied to the demand to invest in affordable housing throughout the city. Shrinking the criminal legal system leads to fewer people cycle through King County Jail most of whom are shuttled to the city's municipal courts for misdemeanor offenses. Rather than hand over more money to police for surveillance technologies, the solidarity budget invests in tech for the people in which digital stewards work with community members. They also created a guaranteed income pilot program to cover childcare, food, other basics, because too often people are forced to choose between these essential needs. And the last time I checked, the Seattle Solidarity Budget organizers successfully shrank the police budget two years in a row while winning investments that center the city's most marginalized residents. By tearing down the silos across their many interests, 
coming together to consult, hosting public education meetings over Zoom, rallying at City Hall, showing up to provide testimony at, testimony at City Council meetings, and more. They remind us that a budget is more than a budget. It is a moral document that states who and what we value. Even more, their work brings to life the fact that all of our struggles are interconnected, that we are interconnected, a beautiful poetics of living. The final example of viral justice I'll share tonight brings me to technology, which I've written about as a powerful mirror and purveyor of deep-seated inequities, what I've termed in these works, the new Jim Code. But with this new project, what I also want to highlight is how tech design can reflect and shape solidarity and healing in the midst of multiple social crises. So to give you a sense of what I mean, I'm gonna take us back to March 13th, 2020, in the early days of the pandemic, when Brianna Taylor and her boyfriend, Kenny, were asleep in their apartment in Louisville, Kentucky, when just before 1 a.m., they heard a thunderous noise at the door. Kenny was a postal worker and Brianna, an aspiring nurse, was an EMT covering two hospitals in the city. In other words, these two were of many millions of essential workers who we all relied upon until their sleep was violently interrupted. Kenny, a licensed gun owner, grabbed his weapon and crept down the hallway. Only later would he learn that three plainclothes officers had a no-knock warrant to enter the home without identifying themselves. The police used a battering ram to break down the front door, not knowing who it was and fearing for his and Brianna's lives, Kenny shot one of the intruders in the leg. In response, the police unloaded 32 rounds of ammunition, several rounds of which also sprayed into a neighbor's apartment where a young child and mother slept. The officer's bullets ripped into Brianna's flesh, striking her eight times and savagely stealing her life. According to neighbors, the officers made no attempt to identify themselves as they initially claimed. It turned out that one of the people whom police were investigating and looking for, someone who had a prior relationship with Brianna, was already in custody at the time they burst into her apartment. Officers said they were searching for, for um, searching her place for suspected drugs, which they didn't find. The irony of this timing was not lost on Brianna's mother, Tamika Palmer, who gets emotional when she considers that she was more concerned with her daughter's safety as a healthcare worker than she was about her being safe in her own home. The ultimate threat then to Brianna's life was never COVID-19, but brutality at the hands of the police. But in the midst of unimaginable grief, Brianna's family is determined not only to mourn her death, but also celebrate her life. Kenny, Miss Palmer, Brianna's sister, Janiah, want us to connect Brianna to her purpose, not just her pain. So what does all of this have to do with viral justice and tech, you may be wondering? Well, Brianna's garden, as I'll show in just a minute, is a virtual and augmented reality experience conceived by artist and curator, Lady Phoenix, and co-designed by Brianna's family. It brings us back to this idea of plotting change, one backyard and one front yard at a time. But in this case, the plot is virtual. Before saying too much more about it, I'm gonna share a video, hopefully the audio works. Please stop me if you don't hear it in just a moment. Brianna's garden started out as a need or a desire to want to 
provide a safe place for Janiah Palmer, who's the younger sister of Brianna Taylor. I wanted a way for her to feel safe, you know, in a world where people were saying very disparaging things about her sister, someone who's a role model, her hero, right? And so in this garden setting, we provide the ability to silence a lot of the noise and focus on the clear signal of healing, of reconciliation, of honoring someone's life, honoring the connection. I'm Lady Phoenix. I'm an artist, I'm a curator, and I'm an art advisor. I wanted to engage Janaya in a, you know, kind of hands-off way. Just started following her on Instagram, wanting to understand her story, wanting to understand who Brianna really is and was to her and her family and her community. And in doing so, I was very touched, very touched by everything Janaya was sharing. I phoned up my buddy Sutu, who's a legendary AR, VR artist. And I said, hey, I have this idea. Um, are you interested? <laughs> he said, yes, straight away. Love the idea, and we began working. That was in the summer of 2020. When we initially approached Janaya, at first she was like, this is cute, this is cool, thank you for doing this, I'm not interested. She was like, well, I get approached all the time. I and mean, it actually never really is about Brianna, or they never follow through. I said, okay, no problem. And I kept working and kept observing and remained a part of her online community. And then I came back and I said, we have something for you to actually look at. It's not just like a deck. We have something for you to interact with. Um, what do you think? And then she messaged me back and she was like, oh my God, I love it. I'm crying. I showed my mom, she's crying. This is beautiful. Yes. I think she felt seen. I wanted to give Janiyah a choice, ultimately. Sure, the world is saying what they're saying about your sister. You know, your family knows that's absolutely false. They didn't know her, right? They're just, it's, they're simply trying to get a rise out of people and, and, and selling the hour. How about we come into a reality where who Brianna was to you, who she is to you, can be the core of why people gather. Love can be the focus. What's horrible and traumatic is known, but the unknown is the beauty, is the joy, is the wonder. And to be in a place that's not only held for that possibility to continue to flourish, but also the possibility of complete strangers coming into the garden, planting their own flowers through their own memory of their loved one. People who are drawn to this project are drawn because of the healing nature of the project and because of the beauty nature of the project. It's actually quite beautiful to be held by butterflies and hummingbirds and you know all manner of life and colorful flowers and bees you know literally life is attracted to this place whether it be in the digital sense or in the physical sense we're creating a bridge where people can move closer to that beauty within them and move closer to that healing within them It's something that we as a humanity, especially in COVID, when people couldn't even bury their loved ones, I think it's a solution, an important solution, that allows us to keep living and keep loving and keep remembering and keep sharing and keep coming together around things that are important and that are precious, which is life.
So when I first met Janaya and Kenny to discuss this project, they seemed genuinely invested. That is, it was a way to rewrite Brianna's story scratching the contemptuous media speculation that she was responsible for her own death and scripting a digital coda, we can call it, that extended her passion for nursing to collective healing. Brianna's garden was designed to be a digital public space for celebrating life and gently holding grief, unlike social media where hatred contaminates any love and support that might be spread. The app also provides a way for people to connect with others in honoring their deceased loved ones because the messages in the garden can be for anyone, not just for Brianna. Even more than the technical innovations, which are many associated with this project, what impressed me was the care and collaboration that went into the design of Brianna's garden. That is, Lady Fee was very intentional in centering Brianna's family. The family in turn continues to seek justice through the courts, and they've been using the garden to raise awareness about Brianna's case. On August 4th, 2022, more than two years after Brianna was killed, four Louisville officers, three of whom provided false information that led to the nighttime raid, and one of them whom fired blindly into Ms. Taylor's apartment from outside, were charged by federal officials. The two officers who actually shot Brianna, though, have yet to be charged. Lady Fee, in turn, encourages those who experience Brianna's garden to expand our imaginations of justice, to include the work of repair and healing. She draws upon the work of Mia Mingus, who describes transformative justice as a way of making things right, getting in right relation, or creating justice together. This view of justice doesn't just happen in the courts, if it happens there at all, but in community with others, even with digital communities like Brianna's Garden, where people can gather and grieve, heal and organize. So before you all log off today, or just after you log off, I encourage you to visit the App Store on your phone and download Brianna's Garden and experience it in your own room, living room, workplace, um, and see what it's like. Viral justice in the end is an admission. I am, we are exhausted, discouraged, grieving, and sometimes even too exhausted to grieve. It is a recognition that even the most resolute and hopeful among us worry that our efforts are futile and we all need encouragement to see another day. As a world-building rubric, viral justice is forward-looking and inventive, asking, what if, while stubbornly invested in the here and now, demanding, why wait? What if we can architect a radically different existence? Why wait for these brutal death-making structures to completely collapse before we start truly living? The lens of viral justice encourages us to amplify, like a microscope would, seemingly small efforts and entice us to spread them. It is a rallying cry that scraps this bogus idea that you're just one person. As just one person, let's band together with all the other just people who are equally hungry for change. In the midst of multiple ongoing calamities, this work of crafting more caring social relations is not charity work, work to be done on behalf of others. Falling from a burning building, I might hit the ground first, but you won't be far behind. My well-being is intimately bound up with yours. 
we so we don't need allies. We need everyone to smell the smoke. Again, it might be tempting to dismiss these as small, fleeting, inconsequential, as we're only taught to, to really appreciate and value that which is big and grand, official and codified. But a microscopic virus has news for us. A micro vision of justice and generosity, love and solidarity can have exponential effects. So at the end of the day, I am a student of the late great Octavia E. Butler, writer and builder of speculative worlds. To the question, what is there to do? She once responded, I mean, there's no single answer that will solve all of our future problems. There's no magic bullet. Instead, there are thousands of answers at least. You can be one of them if you choose to be. We can be one of them if we choose, vectors of justice, spreaders of joy, transforming our world so that everyone has the chance to thrive. For me, this is not pie in the sky thinking, nor simply an interesting intellectual quandary. It's very personal. As I mentioned at the start, I have a younger brother, Jamal. We grew up in the same house. We have the same parents, same neighborhoods, but all of our lives, the police have been chasing him. Well, chasing is the wrong word, hunting. He is hunted. In Viral Justice, I write about this in some detail, including how he was jailed in the notorious Twin Towers in Los Angeles, a facility famous for torture and unexplained deaths of inmates. Eventually, after years, my brother's record was expunged, but not before he experienced unspeakable harm at the hands of individuals who didn't see his humanity. One quick story I'll share before closing that when my mom and my brother were planning to visit me for an extended stay in Princeton, I was excited initially, but then quickly grew anxious thinking about how people would react to seeing a tall black man with a hidden disability walking around town. How would they react to Jamal saying or doing things out of the ordinary that could easily be misconstrued as strange or menacing, singing or talking loudly to himself, walking up to strangers, carrying on a one-way conversation, dressing in ways that would make him stand out. Scrolling through Twitter, my, my Twitter feed one day, I saw this post saying that the Princeton Police Department would be hosting a meet and greet at the local Panera Bread on Nassau Street, that same street where you saw those protesters. And so I had this bright idea to go and, and let them know that they might get some calls about my brother in the coming weeks and that they should not overreact. So when the day came, I sat in the booth, picking at my piece of bread, stirring my tomato soups, going back and forth about what exactly I would say. And I finally worked up the nerve, scooting out of the booth and walking to the back of the restaurant where two officers had set up. And so I'd barely introduced myself uh, to the one officer who was free to talk when tears slowly started rolling down my face, surprising even me. I don't exactly remember what I blathered out as I tried explaining my concerns, imploring them not to overreact to inevitable calls and complaints, not to misconstrue strange behavior for threatening and mostly just not to hurt my brother. In the end, Jamal's extended stay in Princeton was mostly uneventful. But it's worth noting that several years later in the very same spot where I stood tearfully pleading to the police, officers would shoot and kill a suicidal white man, a veteran in his 50s. Scott Milentz, who pleaded, just kill me, just do it for me, guys. And they did. Suicide by cop in the heart of Princeton. 
Yet another reminder that when we rely on police to manage crises of all sorts, the outcome is often violent. This is why more and more communities are developing alternatives, unarmed non-police response teams that are trained to handle mental health issues. We have one in Lynn, Massachusetts, in Denver, Colorado, in Charlotte, North Carolina, in Portland, Oregon. Instead of calling 911, residents can call 988. And the idea is catching on in dozens of other locales. But to actually, actually function in times of crises, we need local and state governments to invest in these non-police response teams as part of a broader set of changes, not acting alone. So in the end, I'm encouraging all of us to get our hands dirty, if not in the actual dirt, like the gangster gardener in many other ways, because this work is messy, but we each have to figure out what our plot is. Whether digging deep or sowing seeds far and wide, plotting is about questioning the scripts that we've been handed. It's about scheming with others, plotting to do and be otherwise for the collective good of all. With that, I thank you for your attention. I'm going to stop sharing my screen, and I look forward to your questions and comments. Thank you. That's great, Rua. Thank you very much for the moving uh, overview of your book and your comments. And I, I want to welcome, we have uh, people on the platform from Greece, South Africa, Taiwan, the US, Palestine, Brazil, Nigeria, and if you can believe it, Ukraine um this evening um well there's a lot there and and um and i've read a good chunk of the book and i i, I mean it's very well written and it's interesting i i suppose the first question i walk we wait for questions to come in let me ask you just a, an opening question because one of the things that struck me early in the book you you say, um, you talk about your hesitance, actually, as a sociologist, as a professional sociologist, to, yeah. to focus on the role of individuals. I mean, yeah. the book is about individuals yeah. and, and the role of individuals in advancing social change. So I suppose this is maybe like a, a two questions. What Say, tell us a little something about Maybe the, the ambivalence or the hesitation early on about, let's say, going to the individual level. Yeah, absolutely. And then what made you, so what, was it an event or living through the pandemic? What, what made you yeah. decide to set those concerns aside and position basically the individual at the heart of your theory of, of, yeah. of viral justice. Yeah, thank you for that. And that's certainly, I mean, until the bitter end, that was still, <laughs> I was like revising the proofs and I was still unsure that I'd made the right decision. Um, you know, part of it is like, you know, they don't call them disciplines for no reason. I was disciplined <laughs> into a field that in many ways, you know, is trying so mightily to counteract these the cultural default, especially thinking about you know U.S. Um, culture of hyper individualism. This idea that we can do anything, we just have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We just you know um, really thinking of, of as free floating individuals, not encumbered by social forces or or history or anything. And so there's this over determined emphasis on individual will, individual responsibility. 
And so as a field, one in which I've been trained for many years, we're trying so hard to give voice to all of the things that are bulldozed over in that, that sort of fetishization of individuals. And so we have all kinds of wonderful vocabulary and theories and methods, all of which I've, you know, sort of internalized. But I think what can happen, what certainly happened to me, because I still get it like an allergic reaction or a twitch when anything about individuals is brought up, even though I've written this book, is that we lose sight of the fact individuals make up institutions. Individuals, without individuals, we don't have societies, we don't have cultures. So although as a discipline, our unit of analysis is often at the more collective level, to make any of those other things happen, you need individual habits and norms and decisions and, you know, worldviews, et cetera, to, you know, so part of it is to say individuals make up systems. One example that I often talk about in the context of technology, looking at, you know, huge, massive, historic, you know, genocides, we know that the, uh, the company IBM collaborated with the Nazi regime to create the technologies to uh, monitor, surveil, and eventually round up and exterminate entire populations. In hindsight, we, you know, the, the, the big, big, bad boogeyman are often take the place of the role of everyday people to make that those massive harms happen. It's when one, one writer calls a bureaucracy of evil where people just put their head down clock in and out, do what they're told, don't really ask any big questions. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Um, and so it takes, uh, if it takes, you know, a village to raise a child, it also takes a village to, 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 to carry out genocide. It takes individuals to work together. And so part of it is to really reckon with the, the role of individuals for better or worse. And, and so I think that really what motivated me in the early weeks and months of the pandemic was just seeing how individuals arose to help their neighbors in these mutual aid, aid networks um, to really just, to, for some, it might've been minor inconvenience for some serious sacrifice, you know, how it took individuals sort of thinking about the collective, but making individual choices to put the collective first. Um, in many places. And so that I think is what really was um, a shift. It it's the, the book is in many ways a love letter to all of the ways that individuals, groups, collectives that don't often get the shine. Like we don't remember their names in history, but who we rely on for our, you know, our well-being and for these, these positive things to happen in the same way as we see the negative. And so that's why you are going to hear and learn about so many people doing incredible um, work around education, about worker justice, around health justice, um, abolition. Um, and part of it is to, to, to show what's already being done, but also to encourage more of it, to say, if they can do it, we can do it, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so hopefully that gives you a sense of what I've been wrestling with, but yeah, also yeah. what, what I, I, that's interesting to hear that and that there was a tension for you. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, and we, you know, those of us who've been through getting the copy edits and wondering, is this really what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, when I want my name on, I, I totally appreciate totally, that. Totally, totally. So let me, let me, um, there's a, a, an interesting question here, actually, from um, someone in the, in the U.S. Center and a former student here at the LSE. Uh, Mohid Malik, um, who um, asks, 
Would you say the civil rights movement was an example of viral justice given that different acts of individual resistance and reform formed a part of the fight for civil rights for Black Americans? And so that's at this yeah. large scale. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. yeah. I, mean, that, I mean, part. I read a tweet recently. Um, I think the tweet was quoting someone's uh, published work. Um, the activist Mike Davis re recently passed away. And yeah. one of the things he said in this interview that was being um, tweeted, he said, why do we have a, a Martin Luther King Jr. Day and not a civil rights movement day? That is to say, in our historicizing, in our collective memory, we extol not just everyday individuals, but like these heroic individuals losing sight of the masses that actually really push change in important ways as, the, as Mohid is describing. And so if we think about you know, the work of Ella Baker, um, who was really invested in mobilizing, especially young people, but just everyday people to take charge of history, to really redirect history. And she's going, she goes on the record to say, you know, strong people don't, uh, strong, uh, strong movements don't need strong leaders. That is to say, when you build up this sort of collective power, then we don't need saviors, we don't need heroes. And that's not to take anything away, obviously, from Martin Luther King, but even he would recognize that without all of the, the marchers and the protesters and the sit-ins, right. he is an individual. So I want not us to lose sight when I'm talking about individuals, I'm really talking about individuals linking arm with others to, for collective action and organizing and making that decision to do the work with others, not in a kind of savory mode of right. like um, one person standing out above the rest. Well, you know, just to, to follow, I mean, uh, his questions it was an interesting one. And it's something I was thinking about while I was reading the book. In fact, the name that came to mind when I was reading it was Rosa Parks. And, and the reason is because she was, when she took that brave step to refuse to go to the back of the bus, she was just an ordinary person, really. I mean, yes. uh, you know, it took exactly. it's amazing bravery, but it, but it was a catalyzing moment. You know, so it had all these kind of the kinds of reverberations, yes. you know, that your knock-on effects, whatever. I mean, it catalyzed the movement, but it it also reminded me that that she was an ordinary person. But, you know, what made it in a way kind of possible was the groundwork that the NAACP and other national and regional organizations had done because she was the secretary of her local yes. chapter of the, N, uh, the NAACP and, and had been trained in workers' rights and racial equity. So some, there's like an interaction between absolutely this national and then the kind of local individual absolutely no at no point do i say that working at the national or policy or legal level that that is not important right. it's just no, that, that often takes up all the oxygen in the room and that's where we one of the primary sites where we look for 
top-down change to happen. And so this is more about expanding the frame rather than saying either or. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Um, let me turn to a question we have from um, Cornelia Evers, um, an LSE student at the European Institute. Um, um, when you talk about tech for the people, for helping communities to heal, how do you think that the positive elements of technology can be mobilized in an environment where vulnerable communities are often subjected to the negative consequences of um, technology like digital redlining. This is like right in your way. Yeah, it is. And it's <laughs> funny as I've been you know, traveling around talking about viral justice, so many of the questions grow out of my previous work, Race After Technology. So I always feel like I have to tell people that this is not a tech book. There is a little discussion of technology, especially in the work chapter around the gig economy and the kind of algorithms and tools that are used to, um, to control and harm people in terms of their work and labor and what people are doing about that. But I'm still happy to answer this, certainly because I used the example of Brianna's garden here in the top. And I think, you know, the key for me, especially when I start sort of laying out what organizations I look to as examples in this kind of work is thinking about who is controlling the process, like who gets to um, control the means of production, we, we could say, in terms of technology. And so a lot of the examples, let's say data for Black lives as a national organization, or the Detroit Community Technology Project, or in Brazil, I see here there's a question, and I'll sort of answer this at the same time about international seeds of justice, looking to local and regional um, tech equity and tech justice organizations in Brazil, like Preta Lab and Blogueiras Negras and others, we see that the people who are defining the problem are from the communities that are most impacted and harmed. So again, it's moving out of the charity model, someone else doing something for you. And it's people who, who have experienced it on the ground from the inside that are, are pointing the way and directing and leading collectively in most cases. And so I think that that is part of what we have to look to if we want to think about what liberatory tech can be. Um, and it's also the, the, the fact that tech as a fix for deep-seated social problems, it, they, it can never address the roots of the problem. And so along with any kind of um, technological intervention has to be a social infrastructural set of interventions that I mean social relationships and and um, institutions that are surrounding the context of any kind of tech development we have to also care and and think about what needs to change in terms of the power dynamics there and uh, so I guess the last thing I'll say as an example of this that bridges these two questions about international and tech is that a few years ago I had the chance to travel to Nairobi where a gathering of African technologists from all over the continent working on AI and machine learning in different ways had gathered in precisely this way to set the agenda themselves rather than 
being beholden to companies and organizations and academics in the West uh, sort of saying what is good for Africa um, in terms of technology, it's often very exploitative and extractive, setting the terms themselves and the agenda themselves, posing the questions that are most meaningful on the ground and to their communities and building from that rather than, um, you know, mimicking or um, having a kind of what some some have called algorithmic colonialism um, take shape in the way that many of these tools are rolled out. And so I think that there's a lot to be hopeful for in terms of the way that people are retooling technology so that it's more justice oriented. Let me turn to um, a question from uh, Liat Betri. It looks like this is a longtime student of yours, mm -hmm. a postdoc at Stanford. Uh, how can those of us in the academy reframe um, the work of teaching um, uh, in ways that both um, humble and empower the right people? That is, how do we as individuals and collectives break down barriers between what we see as classrooms and who we can learn from? It's a, so a teaching-oriented yeah. question. Yeah, which I always love. I feel like my primary identity is as a teacher. Mm -hmm. I see that as my main plot as I write about in the book, right. but also not a plot limited to the four walls of the classroom in higher education, but really an expansive idea of where teaching happens, what, what we teach, um, who we learn from. And so in my own approach, both in terms of my classes and my the lab that I run, we are in collaboration with community partners where we are not studying them, we are linking arms with them and taking the questions that are meaningful on the ground and thinking about how to approach it from a data justice perspective. And so it's reorienting the power dynamics of where knowledge is, who gets to pose the questions. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of really practically, I'll just say um, yesterday, I was at Cambridge University um, giving a, a race lecture there. And before I went, I reached out to some of my former students there and some of their co colleagues and friends, really trying to learn about what's happening locally at the university in terms of race and inequality. And one of the campaigns that I learned about was justice for supervisors. That's about how graduate workers are treated at the universities that we all inhabit, not just Cambridge, not just in the UK, but the exploitative labor models upon which our institutions rest in the name of tradition. That is, this is the way things have always been done. So that means practically supervisors being paid late, um, not no, not getting uh, active communication, not being taken seriously as workers, not having stable contracts, et cetera. And it's a very similar situation across the US at many of our institutions. So while we want to think about the, the power and the role of teaching, we also have to understand it as work. It's not simply, as one of my Yale colleagues tweeted it last week, a calling, because when you call it a calling, then it's very easy to exploit people by saying, oh, you don't need to be paid well because it's a calling, but you can't pay your rent with a calling. <laughs> and so I want us, when we're talking about teaching, to really reframe it as a form of labor and work and to understand what kind of rights and responsibilities accrue. Because in the end, we can't talk about equity out there, personally speaking, as a sociologist who teaches about power, race, inequality, you can't talk about it in structures out there without reckoning with it on your home, home turf, like in the institution that we work. And so one of the phrases that I really appreciate from the US, former US 
Assistant Secretary of Education, Diane Rabovich, she said, teachers working conditions are students learning conditions. And so there's a direct relationship between how teachers and educators are treated, whether they're graduate students, assistant professors, et cetera, full professors, to the experience of, of students. And so if we're, we're stretching people thin and they feel precarious and they're working five, six, teaching five, six courses and not knowing you know, what, if they're gonna have a job next year and it's so insecure and precarious, that can't help but affect the student learning experience. And so one of the examples I actually mentioned in Viral Justice is really celebrating um, the National Student Union in the UK and how they stood with educators when they went on strike a few years ago, even though that disrupted their classes, they understood that the way that their teachers are treated by our institutions has a direct impact on them and they were willing to sacrifice in the short term. So hopefully that begins to give you a sense that I do have a whole chapter on education and viral justice. And that chapter is titled lies <laughs> to give you some sense of where I'm coming from. Both, But the lies are both at the level of the pedagogy, the curriculum, but also the lie that we tell ourselves and that we're told that education is the great equalizer. Because right now in most parts of the world, education is an engine of inequality. And so if we really want to live up to our values and not have these just be platitudes, then we really have to not just focus on the harms, the inequalities, the injustice happening out there in other arenas without also reckoning with how it, it, it intersects and affects what's happening in academia. Let me ask you a question. You know, another thing about the book that really um, struck me um, is how introspective um, it is. And it you move back and forth in the, the book between the personal and the societal. And it's very effective. I mean, from really poignant moments in your own life, such as the death of your father or the birth of your sons um, to, and, and you did talk about this, the incarceration of your brother, but to broader like social trends and mm -hmm. developments that I guess, you know, that those personal moments like invoke or mm -hmm. reflect or in some way instantiate. And, yeah. um, you know, it's an interesting kind of, I, I don't think it was just, it's like a, why did you? It was very awkward. It was very, it was very awkward to write, I will say. Well, it <laughs> but, comes across, I mean, very <laughs> candid and open, but it, and very effective. Yeah. But I'm, I am curious yeah. about that why, why you adopted an introspective approach yeah. to discussing social change. I would be happy to reflect on that. You know, I think part of, what I was trying to do is since I'm inviting the reader to really yeah. think about their own life in relation to these larger world historical processes, what role they play, how these processes have impacted them, but how they can impact these processes. So I'm asking the reader to dig deep and yeah. reckon both with their own complicity in injustice, but their own power in addressing it and, 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 and working against it and, and working for um, a more livable planet, then I, I feel like if I'm asking you to do it, I have to do it. Like I have to model the kind of deep dive um, rather than as W.E.B. Du Bois said, I can't be a calm, cool and collected scientist right. while Negroes are being lynched, murdered and starved, right? And so it's this idea that 
at a certain point, we have to take off that that distance, you know, scholar um, cloak uh, or drag, as it were, and really get in the mud with everyone else and think about how how we have been affected by how we can affect um, the these larger processes. And so part of it is just to kind of uh, uh, have this kind of reciprocal exchange with the reader and say, I'm 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 exposing myself. So it's an invitation for for you to think deeply about it. But I think also, in addition to my own stories, I'm telling a lot of other people's stories in the and presenting it as story, not just as data or snapshots. And so I think part of what motivated me is just taking narrative seriously and as a form of knowledge making and consciousness raising. You know, one study that I often cite. Um, comes to us out of Stanford, and it's uh, the titles, if people want to look it up, is called The Numbers Don't Speak for Themselves. And what these researchers did was they presented data on mass incarceration to white Americans in California and New York. So they showed them data that showed that Black people are being warehoused in jails and prisons at a much higher rate. And then after presenting them with the data, they asked them, okay, now that you see this disparity, are you willing to support reforms to law the laws and policies that are helping to generate this outcome? In California, that was a three strikes law. In New York, it was a stop and frisk policy. And the researchers were really surprised to find that with, with exposure to more information, the individuals who they surveyed were less likely to want to support the change to the policies. That is which for educators completely runs against uh, our enlightenment sure. thinking that if we just produce more articles and books and show and teach, you know? And so, so for me, when I sit with the, the, the results of that study, um, I have to, in, in some ways I imagine, okay, here's someone, their cognition, what's happening in their brain, here's data. Right. So what's happening in between here that long. is not leading to the outcome that people who are invested in data production would want. So we can name that interstitial space in all kinds of ways. We can call it interpretive lenses that they have or cultural narratives or straight up racist lies that they are told and that they tell about why those black people deserve to be there more than their white counterparts in terms of the, 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 the disproportionate rate. And so, that as a result makes me think we have to take the stories that people tell and are told as seriously as the statistics, right? So the data alone, the facts alone won't save us. So we have to be as caring and careful about the stories that we tell about the world, about each other as we do, and to counter false racist uh, sto stories while telling our own. And so I think that's why I'm so invested in that, um, the yeah. craft and the art of storytelling, both my own and others in this particular project. That's very effective in the book. Um, let me turn, to, we've got some other questions here. Let me turn to a couple. One is from um, Amy um, Matry from the Design Justice Network. So this is back to technology. How do you see the temporal tensions between technology-enabled virality policy and research, for example? Do you see a chance of US, UK regulators to catch up and regulate for the downsides of virality, um, like scaling and speeding up injustice? Yeah, thanks for that question, Amy. This is another good one for race after technology, but I'll try. Um, 
you know, it's funny because people often, again, read the viral and viral justice as a nod to digital virality, <clears throat> which it's more really a, a, a reference to the virus. So thinking about the microscopic and the power of small change. Um, but in light of this question, I think, you know, what I think of is that it's not simply the law lag or regulators sort of trying to catch up with tech. Part of it is to think about what laws and policies have enabled the more wild west approach to technology, the laissez-faire approach to technology that we have, at least in the U.S. to a lesser extent um, in, in Europe, in the U.K., and so rather than think about the laws catching up, to think about what was prioritized in our legal and policy um, world to begin with and how that has to change. But to answer the question directly, I, I certainly think that there is um, there's room for um, hope and optimism around um, people taking these issues more seriously, the tech-mediated forms of harm and discrimination. One of the things that happened in the last two weeks out of the Office of um, uh, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, the White House OSTP, is that they issued um, the, the blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. So it's not an actual Bill of Rights, but it's laying out, articulating what should be included in a Bill of Rights surrounding digital harms and right and, and, and equity. Um, Alondra, sociologist Alondra Nelson was really instrumental in, in um, crafting that. And so that's one example where we're starting to reckon with the, the legal protections that have to be put in place, um, the safeguards, the social infrastructure that needs to be put in place for tech development and design um, that ultimately have to be given teeth, though. There have to be consequences for when companies and organizations um, implement socio-technical systems that end up really um, uh, ripping apart the social fabric and harming people and, and, and scaling up inequality. So um, I'm generally, I think we're better off today than we were 10 years ago when it comes to the, 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 the legal infrastructure around tech. Let's pick up this question from Rui Snyder. Um, so the question is, um, while the pandemic has also shown the fault lines that exist within academia, medicine, and policies, and at the same time, there's a grassroots movement within the biomedical sciences towards a more egalitarian approach mm -hmm. coming from patients mm -hmm. themselves. Uh, it's based on the lived experience, which has been at the core of Black feminist thinking. How do we move beyond these hegemonies and hierarchies and bordered ways of thinking within academia to create better systems in a in a global community? That's a big question. That's a big question. That's the million dollar, one of the million dollar questions. Thank you, Ruhi. Um, and I do like that you hear, you sort of ground the question in a particular context, thinking about the biomedical sciences, because I think the answer to that question will vary and has to be responsive to the, the particular um, historical institutional context in which it arises, and that the people, again, in those spaces and in those contexts have to be protagonists of the answer. It can't be imposed. It certainly can't be prescribed by 
a, a one or two professors or even a committee. This is really something that has to be the process has to reflect the outcome that we want. So if we want a democratic world, the process of getting there needs to be more democratic. Um, but very specifically to this question in the context of biomedical sciences, some frameworks that I found very helpful that I won't elaborate on now, but I'll just point you to, and if um, people can drop it in the chat, feel free. But there's a number of ways of thinking about what needs to change um, and uh, in terms of how power um, is organized and knowledge is produced in the biomedical um, sciences. And so one framework that I find really useful is termed structural competency developed by Jonathan Metzl and Helena Hansen to think about what forms of knowledge and disposition do people working in this arenas need to develop that they don't already, that's not already included in their training. So structural competency is a way as a set of skills and insights that have to do with the way that the environment, the way that institutions impact people's health, rather than assuming that these disparate health outcomes are the result of genetics or the result of, and I'm talking about racial differences in health, genetics or even culture um, or intrinsic group difference. It's looking at how the environment and social conditions produce these disparate incomes. And so what does it mean to develop that capacity to understand that, to base our research on that so that we're asking the right questions that lead us um, to the right answers. And so structuralcompetency.org is a website that shows a number of studies in the biomedical sciences that are employing this framework that I would, I think of as part of the toolkit that we need to, as you say, create better systems and a global community. The other thing that goes hand in hand with that, I think, is another capacity that is termed cultural humility. <laughs> and this is developed by a physician, Melanie Turvalon out of Oakland. And she's getting those who are the experts, those who wield power in the healthcare context, and I think it could apply to any context really, to look within themselves, to think about what are the values, the norms, the assumptions, the stereotypes that they are bringing to their work, that they are bringing to their encounters with patients or research subjects. So rather than assume that the patient is the problem, oh, they distrust science, <laughs> as so many do when it comes especially to racialized groups, to say, what are you doing as a physician or as a hospital or as a healthcare profession to produce distrust? And what do you need to change to become more trustworthy? So it's a reframing the onus of responsibility rather than stigmatizing and pathologizing individuals and communities who are just trying to survive hostile systems and say, oh, we need to, we need to help them trust us more. <laughs> Like, what are you doing to generate trust? Um, and so it's flipping the script back and saying, let's let's do a deep dive and think about how we are messing up rather than thinking about, you know, group these groups as the problem. And so again, structural competency along with cultural humility, I think I offer often when I'm talking to professional societies in the, in the biomedical sciences as two lenses, two frameworks that I think can ground a lot of our work. We're on the eve of the midterms in the US. So I guess I'm wondering where you think the United States is today kind of on the issue of racial justice. And I, I you know, I ask this because on the one hand, I, I kind of came away from your book, I mean, inspired and full of hope that there's a path forward that, that actually that starts with um, 
people and local communities and the way you start with, um, um, I, I forget what he calls himself, but the gardener in <laughs> LA is terrific. I mean, it's like a, um, it's, it's very uplifting. And, and in fact, just the idea that people can take the food as yeah. long as they learn. You know? <laughs> and that's a great, great like pedagogy with, exactly. with kids. At the same time, I had, and, and adults too, frankly, but I had this, I, I don't know, this kind of, nagging mm -hmm. feeling mm -hmm. that you probably get this from people mm -hmm. that the turn to this level mm -hmm. represents a kind of unspoken sense mm -hmm. that the large-scale macro focus on policy and law that expanded voting rights that created more educational opportunity more affordable housing yeah. I don't know if exactly that it's run its course, but it's lost altitude. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we can see that. Yeah. And so I guess it just made me wonder where you where you are in this yeah. and, and kind of, you know, if it reflects a, a deeper ambivalence about or frustration with yeah. what's happening, yeah. uh, you know, kind of on social and racial justice in the United States and that the, the, the old ways not working. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I really, that nagging that you described is something that I actually share, you know, even after you write, write, almost feeling like the scale of the problem is, is, is really um, too big for these kinds of, you know, the kind of initiatives that I'm describing to really make a, a significant dent in. And I, and I think, you know, part of, Part of where I am in, in thinking about it is that to fight these bigger, longer term fights, like I think about these parents who've been showing up to these school board meetings who don't want any mention of the history of slavery in their textbooks and like this investment in, in lies and this investment in distortions, not simply by a few figures, but at a grassroots level. So the grassroots is not intrinsically a good thing because people use the grassroots <laughs> to get all kinds of, um, you know, terrible things done. And right. so it's not a romanticization of the little people or everyday people because yeah. the, the same harms are generated again, bureaucracies of evil and so on. But, you know, to think about how this moment has really exposed many of the underlying deep-seated fault lines for what they are, they're no longer kind of shrouded in, um, you know, uh, sort of colorblind language. You know, a lot of, for academics, we were talking about colorblind racism for decades because we were trying to say, well, the racism still exists because people are, are doing it in this way that's more hidden. But the, the all of the hiding is done. <laughs> people are just on the record saying and doing, including now the new owner of Twitter, kind of, you know, it's all out there. And so I think part of what, even amidst that context, um, energizes me is that when you can see what you're up against, it makes you take a stronger stand for what you're for. There's no kind of neutral, you know, agnostic um, sort of sense of we'll let history run its course. No, we are history. So if we can see these wars being waged against the body politic, or as Steve Bannon said a few years ago, in light of the Cambridge Analytica scandal here in the UK, he said, our goal is to break society. 
So once we break it, we can recreate it in our own image, which of course just meant more white supremacy, ableism, patriarchy, et cetera. But it's that kind of very unvarnished um, articulation of what they're trying to do, which when I hear that, I think, wow, this very basic unit of, of our lives, that is society, we can't take it for granted as something that will just naturally cohere and be there and we can count on it. And that, and that there's an active battle against it to break it, where people who are very well resourced have whole teams working overtime, sitting on their own Zoom calls, are mastering plans in order to tear us apart, to fracture the body politic, to sow seeds of dissension, to use technology to do that, right? So that it appears um, neutral and objective. And so I think once we begin to wrap our heads around the human actors, agents, agencies that are trying to wage war on us, <laughs> on the idea of an us, then I think it can motivate us to decide, okay, if people are trying to break society, how are we building it? What are we doing in our own plot, in our own arena, in terms of a, a society building work? And I think when it comes down to it, a lot of us who are who are working in education or healthcare or you know, um, all of these different arenas, one way we can begin to reframe our work it, and think about it as interconnected is that we're all engaged in society building work in ways to draw, to strengthen the social safety net, to reweave the, the, the social fabric in many different ways. And it has to be in all of these different ways. And I think to be able to motivate us to do that, I think it can actually help to see what we're up against really exposed in the way that we have seen over the last few years, at least if we begin to think of it that way and own our power encountering it. You know, um, I mean, I guess that, that leads to a, something that you, you talk about um, at, at the end of the book, which is kind of people finding their own. So you have your plot, your in, in a broad definition of the classroom and so forth. And, but for, I think not just for students, but for people to, I mean, who want to run with this mm -hmm. strategy or approach, you know, what's the, What's the secret to finding yeah. your plot? I mean, yeah. how do you, you know, how do you, how do you identify where you make the contribution? Is it, um, you know, sometimes you do something. I, I mean, if we go back to the gardener in LA, I mean, this has just become a much bigger thing than yeah. you could possibly imagined yeah, exactly. when you started, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. It just takes off. Exactly. And, and in fact, that's how all great stuff happens. It's yeah. kind of this, you know, small thing, as you're suggesting, that just takes, it almost, it just takes a life from Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, so I, I don't know, maybe some thoughts for- Yeah, I do. Long. I have some thoughts about it. I feel, first of all, I feel that there, there are many different starting points and, and some serendipitous, some very strategic um, in terms of how we think about what role we want to play. But one thing I just want to offer in the mix is to really think about what makes you angry about the injustices in the world. Like what keeps you up at night? What raises your blood pressure? What makes your heart beat faster? Oftentimes that's something that has um, impacted you personally or someone that you're close to or that you've seen up close in terms of a form of harm or injustice. And I, I just encourage people to 
to tap into that anger, to understand that anger is a form of insight and knowledge that you don't have to try to suppress anger in order to engage things more rationally. Anger can actually generate fuel. And so, I mean, in many ways, this book is my attempt to metabolize my anger. Certainly teaching is. I find that semesters that I'm on leave, I don't have a channel in which to put all of my frustration and anger. It sort of gets pent up because I have to metabolize it in making sense and, and, and having this pedagogical outlook. So part of it, I just invite people to think about what angers them. But then the next step I really think is not to presume that you alone, again, I'm talking to individuals, but I'm not saying the solution is individual. It's not an entrepreneurship model of social change or a charity model. It's saying, look around you and look at what impacted communities are already doing the work in your plot and contribute to that. And so whether it's about educational justice or health justice or abolition or workers' rights, thinking about what organization, what initiative, what movement that's being led by people who are impacted that even if you are not in that category, you can contribute to, you can contribute your energy, your skills, um, you know, your, your, um, your time to. Um, and so it's really a kind of looking around and finding the plot <laughs> that resonates in terms of um, the aspect of this larger movement that we're working on in terms of world building and, and linking arms with others, but using your anger as a guide <laughs> in the process. Well, you know, that's, a, <laughs> that's interesting. I, I, there was another version of this, I think, in the book. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a story you tell. I, this is, I, I don't know why, this just kind of like stuck with me. Yeah, you know? yeah about the principal when you mm -hmm. take your two, two sons yeah. to the new school. Yep. And mm -hmm. the principal is engaged in really good modeling behavior all the way through the visit, dealing with students, the janitor. Yeah. And it's like the principal has this understanding of their role. Yes. And and the importance of yes. kind of their their modeling. And it, it just struck me as it's like another totally way. I mean that that's clearly, you know, their plot. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But I love that because I hadn't thought about it in that way. That in many ways, what he was communicating to us without saying it directly is I understand that this school is not about me. It's about all of these different parts coming together. So it's it was like him cultivating that and showing us that. And that's really impressed upon me and, and made me think this is where I want my sons. Um, and there's nothing that could have he could have said about the curriculum or this the, the, <laughs> the, the, the test scores or what have you that could have ever come close to his relationship with the different people um, under that roof. And so I love that you brought that up in relation. Yeah, no, it's kind of like I, when I was reading, this is a safe therapy. Yes, you know? yes. So, yeah. Well, look, this has been tremendous. It's been great so to have you on here. Um, so I'm so delighted it worked out and that the Zoom connection, yes. you know, finally, finally worked out. I want to, you know, thank you for, for joining us, I wish you the best of luck on thank the rest. You I know you're on a, on a book tour here, and um, and I want to thank everybody for joining us on Zoom uh, this evening. Um, 
So these are these are just great thoughts. They inspire a lot of hope and they couldn't be more timely, Rua. Best of luck to you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.